This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hanya, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your last novel, A Little Life, started quietly in March of 2015. And then the word of mouth started to really take off sort of late that spring, early into the summer. There had been some reviews and then there were more reviews. But I remember that summer with everyone running around saying, have you read A Little Life yet? Have you read A Little Life yet? Have you read A Little Life yet? Yeah. Then you get shortlisted for the Man Booker and the National Book Award. You win the Kirkus Prize for fiction. And the word of mouth keeps going. I remember everyone buzzing about this book and buzzing about this book. And it keeps going for a bit. And I'm talking to stores around the country and they're just like, oh my God, a little life, a little life, a little life. And then 2019, 2020, more like 2020, I guess. Book talk. (laughs) Book talk takes a little life and shoots it into the stratosphere. And so I think there are folks out there who are coming to A Little Life now, and it's a combination of my friend told me I have to read this book because otherwise I'm missing out. Yeah. And book talkers saying, oh, you're not going to believe this. And it's going and going and going. And now your third novel, To Paradise, has just landed, and it's 700 pages of wow. But it's a really different reading experience (laughs) (laughs) from A Little Life. It is. I mean, I have to say, first of all, that I am not on TikTok because I'm about 30 years too old and I don't want to traumatize the young people who are on TikTok and who have really made this platform their own. But it has been so astonishing and moving to me to watch how this book has found organic life with readers. And, you know, the book publishing industry, I used to work in book publishing, you still work in book publishing on the other side of the desk. You know, Book publishing spends all of its time trying to figure out how to market books. But I've always maintained that the big problem with book publishing is that they only know how to reach 4,000 or so readers who actually do already know how to surface books. And when you are lucky enough as a writer to have your book be found and then have it be a source of someone's passion, someone who is not normally spoken to by the book publishing industry, and who then, with generosity and real passion, finds a way to tell other people about it. You cannot get luckier than that. And it has nothing to do with the book publishing industry. It has nothing to do with corporations. It only has to do with one reader talking to another reader. I owe those readers and those booksellers who sold this book by hand in the early stages of its life. I owe them everything. You know, I owe them my career and it would not exist without them. And I think it's the book publishing industry and and how books are found and how books are sold and who reads books and how they discuss them has become so much more democratic over the last five years even. And it's been a wonderful thing to watch. The power has really returned to the hands of the reader. And when you are lucky enough to be embraced by one of those readers, there's really nothing better. And there's nothing you can do to make it happen. It just either organically happens or it doesn't. This book is really interesting. You've broken it out into three parts. The first part of the book is set in an alternate 1893 New York, and gay marriage is legal. Yeah. And we meet our first David, and I'll explain what I mean by first David, but I want to set this up for listeners who haven't yet read the book. Our second section of the book is 1993 New York, and the AIDS crisis is tearing through the city, I think is the best way Mm -hmm. to describe it. And then the third section of the book is... A 2093 New York that I'm hoping we don't get to, but right now it feels like it's not impossible. (laughs) Yeah. So can I ask how To Paradise started for you? I had been thinking about these three 
separate stories, the stories that would eventually morph and change to become the three parts of this book. So I was thinking about it in about 2016, and I turned in A Little Life to my editor in 2013, and I actually didn't really start writing this book until 2018. So for those five years, I really didn't write anything. But I was thinking about these three ideas, the tripartite structure, in 2016. And in 2017, it got a little sharper. I started doing research with virologists at Rockefeller University, which is a private postgraduate university on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And then 2018, I realized what the structure was and I began to write it. And I think that people will focus understandably on the pandemic part of the book. But to me, what this book really is about and what inspired it and what made it possible was the election in the past four years. Because What's more interesting to me, you know, insofar it's, as the book is predictive at all, it is not so much predictive of the pandemic, which defines the third part of the book, but of the fundamental questions we're asking in this country about what America is, you know, who writes our history, mm-hmm. who gets the star in it, and who gets to interpret it. And those are questions that are being asked by all of the characters in these three different Americas. The middle section, the 1993 section you mentioned, is our America. But the other two sections, the 1893 and the 2093, are different ideas of America. And I think all of us who live in this country, because it's such a young country, are always thinking about what if. And this is true of everyone, left and right on the political spectrum. I think one of the questions all of us are constantly asking ourselves and asking each other is, what if this didn't happen? What if so-and-so hadn't been killed? What if so-and-so hadn't been elected? What if slavery hadn't existed? What if this institution had been better? Because this country feels so fungible, we are constantly engaged in this sort of choose-your-own-adventure quality of how we conceive this country. And it was because those feelings felt so pitched and so intense over the past four years That is really what I think defined this book more than anything else. I want to go back to the opening section for just a second. 1893, New York. 1893 is the year that the Hawaiian monarchy is overthrown. And Hawaii appears much more intensely in the second and third sections of this book. I don't want to call New York necessarily the the brain of the book and Hawaii the heart, but the metaphor sort of works. I I like that. I may feel that later. (laughs) By all means. 1893 David, as I call him, Mm. he is mysteriously an invalid, but falls in love with a musician who is of a different social class. And I'm going to leave some of the details out because the way you handle their relationship and what happens, it's very Henry James. It's very Edith Wharton. There's a lot happening in this first section of the book. Did you start writing this book chronologically or did you just work through the ideas because the name David, the name Edward, the name Charles, just to give three examples, pop up in every section of the book, but they're not the same character. They're not necessarily even related, but yet they share quite a lot of personality. Well, I conceived of, of three sections of the book together. One wouldn't be able to exist without the other two. And as you mentioned, the names repeat. So the worlds change, but there is always the same set of names. Those three main characters, David, Charles, and Edward, as well as a number of secondary and tertiary characters. The name Nathaniel repeats, Eden repeats, Eliza repeats. It is a limited palette of names and a limited palette in a sense of locations, as you mentioned. I mean, there's Hawaii, there's New York, and those are the two poles of these worlds and the characters move between them depending on on where they are in space and time. There are a few things I was thinking about. I mean, the first is this is in a sense a very 
classic or it's meant to allude to a classic fantasy echo novels, which was, you know, a book that was written typically about the end of the 19th century and the rise of modernity. Humans invest special meaning into the ends of centuries. And I wanted these characters to all be living at the end of something and working with fear and hope into a new century in the last part, the new millennium. These are people who are aware that they are living in a time of great change for all of them and are aware that they are living at the moment in which things might go terribly wrong or might turn in their favor. And as for all the the repeating names, just to come back to that point, Part of, I hope, what this book communicates is an inverse of how we think about history. You know, we think about history as something that we create, that it is because of us as individuals that the world as we know it takes form and shape. And one of the things that I hope the book subtly suggests is, well, what if it's actually the opposite? What if the names remain the same and history changes around us, that we are being shaped by history rather than history shaping us? It's hard to see that history is being formed around you as it's happening Mm. because you're lost in the moment. And I think we've seen a lot of that in, say, the last 10 or 15 years, especially with these tiny things that build into larger things or our response to the larger things, as it were. We're taping this on January 6th, 2022. Your book comes out on Tuesday. And I think we're all watching and, you know, comparisons are being made to Watergate. And the question is, where do we go from here as a country? And David and Edward and Charles, in all their different incarnations, they are wrestling with being outsiders in a way, whether it's 1893 New York or 1993 New York. And certainly we're going to get to 2093 New York, but I sort of want to take the first two sections in order. One of the things I noticed when I was reading is that the men seem a little bewildered and they are looking for their lives. They're looking for love. They're looking for freedom in a way. They're looking to find their place in the world and they're having a rough go of it. And especially 1893 David and 1993 David, whose Hawaiian name is Kawika. That's interesting that you saw it as as the men being particularly bewildered. I wasn't actually trying to make a specifically gendered experience here, mm-hmm. but all of the characters are lost in some sense. And it's not necessarily because they are disenfranchised within the society they live in, especially not 1893 David, for example. But it is because they feel somehow left behind from the places they're in. They feel that not only that they don't quite fit in, but that somehow the century is moving forward and they can't quite keep up with the change of what's happening. And they also want fundamentally to be loved. It doesn't matter who they are or where they are. They want to feel loved and to give love. And that to me is one of the things I wanted, and I know I'm going to skip forward here a little bit, but in the last part of the book, which is set in a totalitarian vision of America, I wanted to remind readers that no matter how um, despotic um, you know, one's leader might be or how restrictive one's government might be, the fundamental qualities that make us human are ungovernable. Namely, the desire to love, the desire to be loved, the desire for affection, the desire for some form of beauty. Those are things that remain constant throughout human history, throughout every culture, and throughout every government. And that even in a society where things are very bleak, even in an era when things look very hopeless, the human desire for those needs, those fundamental needs, remains and endures. And it is why we can enjoy fiction and literary narratives from hundreds of years ago and from cultures very foreign to our own, because 
ultimately and elementally, they are about the human desire for connection. And that is, I think, hopeful. That is a form of human resistance, as it were, in a way. No, that makes a ton of sense. It's also interesting that in each of these sections, that actual family of origin or blood relations, whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. family, really takes center stage for each of your characters. And even in 1993 New York, really the story becomes about Kawika and his father, who's still in Hawaii, and Mm -hmm. his dad's, I guess we could call it a breakdown? Yes, a collapse. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we've got characters who've been raised by their grandparents, not by their primary parent. And family is part of why they feel so outside, because they haven't quite figured out the rules of engagement for their own families. Yes. I mean, one of the questions that I hope the book encourages, at what point love becomes oppressive or even tyrannical? You know, all of these characters have a grandparent who tries to make decisions for them in order to protect them. And all of their grandparents misjudge to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Mm-hmm. And as much as the desire to be loved um, is consistent throughout the book, so too is the desire to run from love or from love's demands and from uh, love's oppression in some senses. I, I think, you know, for A Little Life, obviously, so much of that book was about exploring what friendship meant in the modern age. And this book, I think, this was not my observation, by the way, this is one of my friend's observations, is also about challenging this idea of parenthood. And one of the things that I think the book suggests is that being a parent is simply an older person taking care of a younger person. And that question is, what does that taking care look like? What should it look like? What are the limits of what it can do? And there are no mothers in this book. I mean, there's no, the one grandmother, there's, but... Yes. But there are no mothers, you're right. And the one mother there is is a bad mother um, who Mm. appears in the third part. You know, this is my third book. Once you've written your third, there are discernible patterns and themes and and motifs. And you often don't realize them or recognize them until you're done and someone else has pointed them out to you. I mean, there are no mothers in any of my books, and I'm not Mm -hmm. sure why that's so. I'm, You know, I'm sure some psychologists could figure it out, but there aren't any. And I'd be curious about any theories. And there's often a parental surrogate in all of the books. And this is true with, with the grandparents in each of these three sections. I know I keep teasing the third section, but <laughs> it really does anchor the book in a different direction. I kept thinking about Michael Cunningham's The Hours as I read the second section of the book, which mm. it's not the direct sort of lineage as it were, but it's more a matter of the melancholy, the knowledge that things are not right in the community, things are not well, that people are dying, people are suffering. It was a really scary time, especially in yeah. New York. And to balance that in a way with Hawaii's losses and the perceptions of Hawaii. And you've even sort of, (laughs) I love this line, you've referred to Hawaii as your Newark, as in your sort of touchstone, your fourth generation Hawaiian. But you've lived in New York for quite some time. What does Hawaii mean to you beyond your Newark? I mean, there's got to be an emotional connection there that you don't get from other places. You've lived in a lot of different places, right? I have, but you know, we've talked about this before. We're both Japanese Americans. I'm Yonsei. I don't know what you are. So I'm by the Japanese way of counting, I'm fourth generation American. The Japanese count the first generation, the generation that actually immigrated as the first generation, which I actually think is, is true in a poetic way. I've always said that Hawaii is 
really the Asian Americans, you know, imaginary homeland, to borrow a phrase from Salman Rushdie. It's a majority Asian state, and Japanese Americans are very much like the Irish in Boston there. You know, they are civil servants, and they're the police officers and the firefighters. They are the backbone of what makes the state run. And at the same time, you're also living in a place that was a kingdom and with Hawaiian people. And the term Hawaiian, you know, in case your listeners don't know, actually only refers specifically to people of Native Hawaiian blood, which I am not. So just as Obama would not be a Hawaiian just because he was born there, I'm not a Hawaiian either. I am a fourth generation resident, but I'm not a Hawaiian. And, you know, I think anyone who was who has been raised in a colonial plantation-based island will recognize a lot of Hawaii. It was for many years, obviously, a plantation island itself. And the Asians who came over came over to work in the sugarcane and pineapple fields, um, including my paternal relatives. And there is in its architecture, in its systems, in its pace, has been quite recognizable to many people who have spent time in certain Caribbean countries, for example. And yet, if you really love the islands, if you really feel a part of them, you also are actively engaged in the question of the Hawaiians, whose land it is and whose land was taken from them, and who have given everyone who grew up there and who lives there a uh, so much in so many different ways. I mean, the language itself is beautiful and has been brought back thanks to the efforts of activists and scholars. It's really a remarkable thing. You know, when I was leaving high school there in 1992, the state was opening up its first Hawaiian language immersion school. And now, you know, I spent a couple of summers there recently. Now you actually hear people on the streets downtown speaking in Hawaiian with each other. And it's just an extraordinarily powerful and moving thing to witness that you have Hawaiian language scholars, that when you get money out of the ATM, one of your choices is a Hawaiian language choice, Olelo Hawaii, as it's called. It is such an incredible resurrection because so many people work so hard for it. And of course, you understand the Hawaiian dance and Hawaiian song. It is all around you. But in this day and age, it's also uncomfortable because it is land that was taken not so very long ago. I mean, there's a point in the second book in which one of the characters is realizing that his great-grandparents would have seen the queen waving to her subjects from the palace, that mm -hmm. that history was actually not so long ago. And that is something that I think the book does discuss, too. In America, and as I said, it is such a young country that what we think about as very old history is only old according to us. So almost everyone else in the world, especially people who come from very, very old cultures, which all of us do actually in America, whether we came here by choice or not, or whether we're native to this country, everyone came from a very old culture, but the country is very new. And mm -hmm. so we think of time in a very different way. And the book suggests, I think, that if time is an arrow, history is a helix, and it goes back and forth and back and forth, and it loops back around on itself, and progress, or what looks like progress, is not felt in a linear way. It is not a, it's felt in a progressive way either. It is something that can move forward and back, and different people at different points in a society will find themselves on the outside. 1993, David has a partner who's 30 years older than him. And we are back at this townhouse on Washington Square, which is essentially the setting for the first piece of the book as well. But Charles has his own secrets and he has quite a lot of privilege and he still doesn't quite have access to the world the way he would like to have access to the world. Right. And he does love David and David does love him. But I don't think I'm reading in 
too much melancholy based on what I know about the period in New York, but there is a sadness to this section that the other two sections address differently, I think. How hard was it for you to write the second section? It came fairly easily because the second section is in two parts. The first part, it takes place over a single night, a party over a single night in 1993 in this townhouse. And the second part is a flashback to 1993 David's father's choices in Hawaii. You know, I came to New York in 1995 and various medications had changed what it meant to be diagnosed with HIV Mm -hmm. profoundly. But you knew people who knew people who had died. And everyone understood, I think, the amount of courage and bravery and compassion that a generation of gay men and also of lesbians who, who helped them had displayed when effectively the rest of the country had governmentally and societally and often personally turned away from them. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the big differences, obviously, between that pandemic and this pandemic. This pandemic is not stigmatized in the same way. Anyone could get AIDS and anyone can get COVID, but one of them was seen as a moral failing and the other is seen as simply what it is, as a, as a particularly fast-moving and contagious virus. And again, I had thought about this section before COVID arrived, and it's certainly not meant to be any kind of metaphor. But it is meant to suggest that, and in each, this is true of each of the sections, in each of the sections of this book, there is a group of people who are ignored or outcasts or treated with great cruelty. In the first part of the book, 1893 David is a rich young man who is fragile, but is also profoundly privileged. He lives with his grandfather. He has lots of money. He has a place to live. He has access. And yet, even among his educated, fairly liberal, by the classic definition of the word, educated friends and family, even within that set, they don't think of trying to certainly help Black people. They don't think that Black people are as good as they are. They don't think that, that you know, Native Americans deserve to live on their mm-hmm. land. There is, even in this society, a sense that there is a group of people suffering and that another group, the dominant group, has turned away from them. And that is true in the second part of the book, and that is mm-hmm. true in the third part of the book as well. And mm-hmm. we see that, of course, all the time. The difference, I suppose, is that the group of people who suffers the worst oppression in this country, it's remained pretty fixed. It's always the same group of characters, right? In these books, that group changes from section to section. Which brings me to 2093 New York. The Washington Square townhouse has been broken up into apartments. It's Mm -hmm. a New York that has not yet happened, but frankly could. It has a, a David Mitchell cloud atlas feel to it in some ways. It has some Ishiguru feel to it as well. And I don't mean just Never Let Me Go and Kathy H's voice there or Clara in Clara and the Sun, but there was a little bit of Christopher Banks, our intrepid detective from when we were orphans, and Mm. a dash of Stevens the Butler from Remains of the Day. And I say that because Charlie who's a young woman who has survived being sick, but there are serious repercussions for her as a result of that. And her grandfather, who, wow, he really meant to do the right thing, and wow, he really did not, uh, I think is the best way to explain that without giving away lots of stuff. But the way that grandfather Charles really is telling himself stories, and he's 
telling his granddaughter stories as a result. And she, I mean, poor thing, really poor thing. Charlie, she really wants to be loved. She's married to a man who's perfectly nice, but it is not a marriage in a traditional sense. It's more straight up for protection because Charlie right. really can't navigate the world. Where did Charlie right. come from? I don't know, but I've been thinking about her for a while. And I mean, I have a great deal of fondness for all the characters in the book, and you have to. You're, you're spending a lot of time with them, and I think the worst thing a writer can do is treat any of her characters with disdain. Uh, it, it always means that the characters are thin and unconvincing and, and that the reader doesn't want to spend time with them either. But I really did spend the most time, in a sense, with Charlie because hers is the most straightforward first-person narrative, and she really is the culmination of all of these books in a lot of ways, that at the end of this particular America is Charlie and her grandfather. I mean, I am a huge Ishiguro admirer. I think what he does in his books is so extraordinary, and he has two themes, you know, history and memory. Mm-hmm. And in each book, he creates a completely different edifice to tell the story, to explore the ideas of history and memory. And sometimes it is an invented medieval fairy tale, mm-hmm. like in The Very Giant. Sometimes it's a morality story, as in The Remains of the Day. Sometimes it's a futuristic allegory, as in Never Let Me Go. Sometimes it is an abstract conceptual book, as in The Unconsoled. I mean, it is very, very hard to do that kind of work. And the sentences are very simple. The writing's very simple. There's nothing self-indulgent. And yet he is able to convey, with very simple language, a true sense of singular melancholy. Mm-hmm. I love Never Let Me Go, and I love The Remains of the Day. I mean, and I really love The Berry Giant as well. Mm-hmm. And in Charles, as you mentioned, in the third part of the book, The Doctor, there is, a, I think, a sense of Stevens, the butler, this person who has had to justify certain decisions to himself. But also, I think, and this is somewhat different from Stevens, really does make decisions he feels are the best. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we throw around this term often that you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And one of the things this book suggests is we don't really know what history is going to say. Mm-hmm. Some things seem pretty obvious that whether you're making the wrong, wrong or right decision. But most decisions, I think, that people in power make if we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt are one bad thing over another. And certainly the decisions that Charles makes in this third part of the book, he makes them with good intentions. And then he also has to suffer as well as everyone else, the consequences of those Mm -hmm. decisions. And so there's a lot of regret in that book and in that narrative. He, in a sense, is a personal symbol of a country's regret of looking back on recent actions and thinking, God, if I hadn't done that, then life would be this way. If I had chosen the opposite way, then life would be better. And it is his torment and his punishment. And I I don't mean that I thought of him in in a punitive sense, but it is his self-imposed punishment in a way that he has to live in the world that he helped create. He's also really bewildered by the consequences. I mean, yes, he does make very specific choices and he does believe he's doing the right thing. But at the same time, he really reveals himself through his letters to this friend, Peter. And as the tension builds, And he's still referring to his son, David, as the baby when David is in his 20s. Yeah. He's tragic, I think, in a way that he doesn't quite understand. But his family has figured out. 
I think he does understand it. Okay. I think he does understand how tragic he is. I think that he is able to see himself as he gets older more and more clearly, and that is okay. his great burden. At the beginning of his narrative, I wanted him to sound cocky, a little arrogant, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, with a, a decent sense of humor and someone with a real sense of curiosity and possibility. And at the end of the book, the cockiness is gone and it's it's given way to despair. I think he still has a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the great joys about writing Charles is that he becomes over the course of the book a good parent. He's a little callow when it begins with his own son, David mm-hmm. Slash, the baby. And by the time he has to take care of his grandchild, he has not only, I think, redefined a parent, but also the expectations a parent has of his child. He was so fixated on his son going to college and getting a job, and his expectations for and his pride in his grandchild are different. He has learned to adjust and learn to accommodate and learn to reestablish his own ideas of success. And I think that he's a character who is changed by his age, but also very well aware of his role in creating that age. And he ends the book with a good deal more insight than he begins it. Mm. His husband, Nathaniel, is an expert in Hawaiian textiles and art and crafts. And it plays a very big part in their relationship and their relationship with another couple who lives in the townhouse on Washington Square. The jacket on this book is a much more classic piece of art than your previous jackets. And it is very Hawaiian. And I'm wondering how it came about. I knew we needed a figurative cover and I'm really sick of graphic and all type covers. Cover design, like all sorts of design, whether it's fashion or magazine design, goes through trends. And mm-hmm. we're in a moment in which everyone's doing sort of a neon, very poppy, very cutout looking cover. And I wanted this to feel deliberately old fashioned, but also a little timeless. And so mm-hmm. I knew we needed a person on the cover. There's a work of art by an artist. Um, named Hubert Voss it's a, mm-hmm. that hangs in the Honolulu Museum of Art, and it's of a paniolo, so it's of a, a Hawaiian cowboy. And I looked him up on the whim to see if he had any other paintings of Hawaiian people, and he did. And it's this painting called Iokepa, Hawaiian Fisher Boy, that he made in 1898. And this painter was not famous or, or well-known. He was Dutch, as I mentioned. He was married to a woman, his second wife, I believe, who was part American, part Hawaiian, because that was, you know, a nationality at the time. And I also think she was part Chinese. Mm-hmm. And he, it was because of her that he came to Hawaii and spent a brief, intense period painting. And he later on went to become one of the last Westerners to paint the Empress Dowager Si Chi, the last Empress Dowager of China. And so he mostly specialized in portraiture and in, in still lives. But what I loved about this painting in particular was, I think he's a very beautiful boy, this young man. Mm-hmm. And I just love the expression on his face. He looks so wary. And it's almost as if he's looking into the future or maybe the past. You can't tell where he's looking. And he sees something coming towards him and he can't tell whether they're friend or foe. And that kind of expression and that kind of wariness and watchfulness felt right for this book as well. What's your definition of paradise? Do you have one? No, and I don't. And I think that one of the great curses and sources of hopefulness for all the characters in this book is they are always looking for paradise and it's always elsewhere. 
And someone I talked to recently said and made the very good point that for Americans, the paradise is always west. Uh, and you know, you go west and west and west until you fall off the land. Um, and then you go west a little more and then you're in Hawaii. But then when Hawaii is no longer what it was, you have to start traveling east again. And by the end of the book, you're all the way back east. And this idea that there is always some piece of unclaimed land or there's always some place where you can feel truly at home is something that not only animates the characters in this book, obviously, but animates all of us as Americans. And for everyone, you know, whose ancestors chose to come here, it animated them as well. This is a country where many of us, uh, not all of us, but many of us came because someone in our past was searching for paradise. And the idea, too, of the American West as the American dream, I mean, that's just a fundamental piece of American mythology. Yes, completely. And to have that challenged by these characters who, as you say, don't ultimately reconcile what they think of as paradise with their realities. Although I have a theory about 1893, David, that I'm not going to share with you here. <laughs> because okay, I don't but spoil I want to hear it later No, no, when, when yeah. we're done, I will, because I, okay. Okay. I had a very specific feeling at the end of that book. And who knows if I'm right or not. I will say when the storyteller in the square that Charlie is listening to pops up with 1893 David's story. I was like, okay, tell me if I'm right. And then of course he did not tell me if I was right, which is fair. It's totally fair. (laughs) He doesn't know either. But this idea that time folds back on itself and place is this very consistent. I mean, I grew up outside of Boston. (laughs) That's the kind of place that doesn't really change. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Right. You know, but if you look at all of the different incarnations of New York that we've even yeah. seen in the last couple of decades, 1990s New York and 2020s New York are not the same place at all, and yet somehow still remain unchanged. And it, it is places like Washington Square Park and the Arch and the townhouses, which have been there since the 1800s. Their uses have changed, but they are still there. Is there anything that surprised you? When you were writing this book, I mean, you're so deliberate in your prose and the structure of this story, but chance somehow still plays into writing fiction a little bit. Sure. But before I answer that, I just want to mm-hmm. make one point. The one thing that the New Yorks of this book all share, the, the New York we know in 1993 and the two New Yorks, the other the alternative versions of New Yorks in, in 1893 and 2093, is that they are all places that people continue to flock to, to try mm-hmm. to make their fortune, to try to test their mettle, to try to fall in love. It remains a place that people feel drawn to and feel that they have to come to. And that is true of the actual New York as well. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the first things, I mean, I heard this when I came to New York. I'm sure you heard this when you came to New York is, oh, you should have come 25 years earlier. <laughs> Is, is, you know, not a helpful statement. And it's also not true. I mean, you know, I was once talking to some older friends of mine and they said, well, you know, no one goes out dancing anymore. And he said, well, they do go out dancing. It's just you're not invited anymore. It's that <laughs> the parties have, that they don't go out dancing where you used to go out dancing, but they're still going out and people are still having a nightlife and there's still avant-garde parties, you know, marginal theater being made. It's just you're not invited anymore. And neither mm-hmm. am I. But it is still happening. The boundaries of where young people live when they come to New York have pushed farther outward than they were when when I came to New York and when you came to New York. But young people are still coming to New York and they're still defining what the city is. And that has been true throughout New York's history. And it was true when New York was at its most broken, most desperate. And it's true when New York was at its richest. 
So that is something that these different iterations of New York do share with the New York that we happen to occupy. Mm-hmm. And as for chance and as for things that are unexpected in the writing, I mean, not really, I have to say, because mm-hmm. by the time I settle down to write, I know where I'm going. So I very rarely will change anything large once I start writing. And by large, I mean large structural matters, you know, kind of a death by a thousand cut changes at every stage of reading it. But once I know where I'm going, I don't deviate from the course that much. Mm -hmm. And you're also the editor-in-chief of the Times Style Magazine, T, which is a really fun read. You also had a cover story in September where you're talking about architecture and how some design is literally just, wait, let me see if I can find the quote. Architecture and design that makes the case for discomfort in the subhead is there are some visionaries who, in their refusal to follow the rules of convention, advance their fields and make us reconsider what we think we know. And that, to me, speaks to the role of literature as well as art and design, but certainly literature and certainly the fine arts. And in the past, you've written about some of the fine art and photography that influenced the creation of A Little Life. But did you have a similar moment with? the creation of To Paradise? Not as directly. Mm -hmm. I think the question I was more engaged with as I was writing this book is the question that occupies my days at the magazine and really defines what this magazine is. And that's, what is it like to be an artist? How do you do it? You know, I think that the culture we really celebrate, first-time artists, the debut actor, the debut musician, the debut Mm -hmm. writer, and then the people at the end of their careers. Mm Mm-hmm. But the real work of being an artist gets done in those 50 years when you're a mid-career artist. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder, what keeps you going year after year after year when you're between projects, when you are uncertain about a project, when you don't like the project, when no one else (laughs) likes the project? What is it that makes people keep going? And that was something I thought about a lot because it didn't make its way into the content of the book. But it was a question I was always asking. And because in this job of editing this magazine, I get to look into the lives of so many different kinds of artists and I get to read about them and I get to watch them sometimes. There is nothing more, I think, stimulating or humbling both for one kind of artist than to watch an artist in a different genre and to see that a lot of the preoccupations are the same, the questions are the same, the work is the same, and it gives one hope, and it also reminds one to get out of your own head, in a sense, to look at other kinds of art, to experience other people's creative minds, and to not just hunker down in the category that you know. Is there anything you want to add, or anything we missed? I mean, the one thing I'll say about Charlie and the first David and, and the second the mm-hmm. second and Vika, David's father in the second book, is I didn't want readers to try to diagnose them. What exactly afflicts them is never named, and it's never talked about in clinical terms. I didn't want people to think, well, Charlie's this way because she has X disorder or Y condition. One of the things that the book asks you to do is to accept these characters as they are and at face value, which is, again, what Charlie's grandfather learns to do in the third part of the book. And it's a great gift that any of us should and can give to the people in our lives. I didn't want it to become a guessing game about illness. And although illness runs through all of the books and defines all of these different worlds, one of the things that I hope the book suggests is that it can't define who the survivor of that illness is. And that something else must take the place of just naming someone by the disease they've had or withstood. 
That's such a good point. Hanya, thank you so much. The new novel is To Paradise and it is out now. Miwa, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.